welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. This episode is brought to you by Coda Payments. Free-to-play game monetization can be a weary endeavor for game developers, especially for publishers of multiple titles. I'm here with Neil Davidson, executive chairman of Coda Payments. Neil, why should games teams look to Coda Payments to solve their payments needs? Last year, the two major app stores collected more than $30 billion in fees from mobile game developers. Coda helps developers collect some of their revenues outside the app stores, keeping more of the income they generate for themselves. We offer a set of solutions that allow developers to collect payments on the web, either on a website that they operate or on one that we do. Either way, players can choose from a range of more than 300 payment methods in 64 territories. We help some of the biggest mobile game developers in the world generate more net revenue, and we'd love to help your listeners do the same. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, Neil. And if you, our listener, want to see how Coda Payments can help solve your monetization needs, head to codapayments.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's jump into the weekly roundtable. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Novik Roundtable. I'm your host, Devin Becker, and today I'm joined by great panelists, as always, especially the lively Aaron Bush, co-founder of Novik. And we've got Anil, also very lively, uh, co-founder of First Light Games, and then Jonathan Anastas, CEO of Clash TV. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we great, too. <laughs> Everyone's having a good time. Awesome. Well, we got some great topics today. A lot of stuff to actually talk about. There's been a lot of kind of updates, uh, people putting out press, things like that. Uh, we've got Sony's showcase, which was, uh, I think, a pretty big deal. Bungie actually resurrecting their marathon franchise. Pretty interesting. Uh, Capcom making a bit of a, a resurgence. And NVIDIA going pretty big, uh, especially on the stock market, I would say. Uh, but yeah, why don't we get into the Sony showcase? Yeah, so I can kick this one off. Um, so last week, Sony had their first major showcase in a couple of years. And as you can imagine, it was packed full with lots of different games. And you can kind of piece together some of the, the directions they're trying to, to take things. Um, uh, most of what was showcased was actually not Sony exclusives. It was a lot of just other major games that are coming out from major publishers like uh, you know, franchises like Assassin's Creed or Alan Wake 2, etc. Et just lots of different um, games. But, you know, Sony still beat Xbox to the punch on unveiling a lot of those. So, so good for them. But, you know, some of the most anticipated um, exclusives to that aren't even necessarily new, but that were just showcased in more depth were games like Spider-Man 2, um, Final Fantasy 16, which is coming out shortly. Um, and then, of course, Street Fighter VI, which I'm sure we can get into more soon. I know Anil is, is a major fan. Um, and also, you can clearly see the, the higher investments into life service games, too. And that was a, a major trend um, that I noted in the showcase. It wasn't just the, the traditional single-player experience, but much more um, live service as a percentage of what was being shown. And we can dig into that more soon, um, too. But... Um, 
you know, also just a couple of high level trends or lots of new games for PSVR. Um, they're saying that it's had a higher up, uh, like selling rate than um, the original PSVR, which, you know, I'm kind of surprised, kind of not b- because the bar was so low uh, in terms of the attach rate for PSVR. And it was obviously more of a first gen, the tech, not like quite where, you know, many people would want it to be. And so seeing them outsell that with the PSVR so far, um, sure, great. And if they're going to continue to support that with lots of games, I think it's good for continuing to see what's possible in that medium and, you know, continue plugging away at R&D until it really is prime time for whatever that, you know, gaming in VR is eventually going to be one day. Um, And then beyond that, you know, we've talked in the past about Project Q, I think they call it, which is their handheld cloud, uh, you know, gaming, you know, device, which, you know, there are definitely mixed opinions on how interesting that is, how important that will be to Sony or even what it says about the direction that they're trying to eventually go with handhelds. They didn't say much new about it other than just saying, yeah, this is a thing. Uh, Like all the leaks are out, so we'll confirm it and we'll tell you more about about it later. Um, So, you know, in total gamer response to the to the event was mixed. They showed a ton of of games, but I guess maybe not enough of the the AAA like new IP or major IP single player games that people were looking for. Part of me wonders if even Sony's holding back a bit just cuz they could always show more later and they're in, you know, the whole Xbox Activision thing is in the the middle of its kind of awkward limbo stages of approval. Maybe Sony doesn't want to show their full strength. I don't know. Um, that's that's just speculation. Um, but either way, it's good to see them having um, a showcase here. And at least there's a lot of games that I am interested in playing. And I'm sure anyone with uh, a PlayStation can find plenty that they are interested in out of what was shown. So I'll pause there. Um, and... I guess first just throw out anything here that anyone is excited about, but then um, can probably hand it over to, to Jonathan to talk about some of the live service stuff and especially what Bungie is up to. Sure. So personal excitement, one of the, the top points for me was Bungie revealed Marathon, right? A, a redo of their first IP. I, I dug the trailer. I thought the opening had kind of like a Tronny for 2023 feel. Uh, but very modern. I thought it was a great piece of art. Y- you know, a little bit of the pushback has been, does the world need another first person shooter? And I say, if it's a great one, indeed they do. Uh, you know, I had the pleasure of working with Bungie at Activision when we launched Destiny. And if that IP had sat anywhere except for in a building next to Call of Duty, it would have gotten even more credit. You know, Destiny 1 was the number one IP uh, of that year, new IP. So I, I'm super looking forward. And I, I also bring the bias of uh, of Halo. I probably played more hours of Halo than any than any game ever. So I, I'm I'm very, very, very much looking forward. You know, 2025 is a is a long way off. And I think the only potential watchouts are Bungie has a bit of a history of not shipping on time and delays. So does 2025 get later? And secondarily, does not always have the best relationship with their publishing partner. And you saw that history through Microsoft, through Activision, and they've got a very new relationship with Sony where they've got to work all that out. But overall, I'm extremely excited about it. And I, my, my guess is it's going to be a great game. 
I got I got to ask why why bring back Marathon instead of branching off Destiny or even creating a new IP? Like what's the value to them? It could be mostly because a lot of people. I mean, I recognize Marathon, you recognize Marathon, but we're kind of in the minority I think when it comes to people recognizing that game and like the actual value of that as an IP. Why bring that one back? It's interesting. I didn't have the same sort of thought about like wow, they're recycling IP. I actually don't think for today's gaming market I think it'll feel more like a new launch than than a redo. You, you know, it's it's got a very fresh take. Technology has gone a long way since the '90s. So e- even somebody who's been in gaming a long time, my lens was really like new IP as opposed to like rehash IP. But uh, again, we only saw a very little bit of the game. But I'm excited by what I by what I saw. I'm curious do you, do you guys think that Sony's push into to live ops as a whole is going to be as successful as they want it to be. Obviously, the company's bread and butter, so to speak, has been these single player games and really scaling that up over time. But they're leaning into live ops for a reason. But just because, you know, more at the parent company level, they don't have a lot of reps um, and I guess haven't seen a ton of great success in the past. And now they're going going hard and scaling up resources very quickly to not just with Bungie and Marathon, but elsewhere too. I'm curious um, where you all think this will ultimately go. Is it going to be as successful as they want it to, or or there's going to be some bumps in the road as they figure it out and maybe reset along the way? Uh, I think it will be successful. It will no doubt have a few bumps in the road. That's always the way. But I think you cannot underestimate how much Fortnite made for them on PlayStation. Like at one point, that was making more than any box product by a long way. It was kind of like a hidden secret that that's where the real money was coming from, from Fortnite, was PlayStation 4. So they would have seen those numbers. I mean, they invested into Epic themselves off the back of that. And they would have said, "Uh, we want a piece of that action and we want it yesterday. And hence why they're they're skilling up and going so quickly. yeah, I think it's interesting that if you look, it wasn't just Marathon. There was another one that Jade Raymond Studio also uh, announced something called Fair Game that was also kind of live service. So they got for a few of them, but neither of these games are what you would call, you know, super pedigree known by every man in the street. So that sounds like the smart way of doing it. Make the mistakes if they happen on these games first and do it later. I think coming back to the Marathon thing, I think that's super interesting. I, I kind of love it when devs go back to something. I mean, if you think about it, that's the first game they ever made. So I imagine that, you know, instead of getting jobs that mom and dad wanted them to get them done then they went into the games industry they must have done something that they really really loved the idea of and they thought it was the coolest thing ever so now they're like hey now that we've got like 30 plus years experience and we know what we're doing why don't we actually make the game that we really wanted to make i mean that's how i hope it's going to be and i actually have to say i wasn't aware that it was coming out so late um i actually thought this was I wouldn't say throwaway IP, but I kind of thought it had the feeling of a kind of side project, right? Like they'd actually have the main team doing Destiny and and this one might be that passion project done by those few crazy guys in the room just because they really believed in it. But if they're taking that long, wow, it seems like they're really going to give it the the love letter. So I think that's great. Um, I'm kind of derailing your, your topic, but yeah, I think it is going to go somewhere. I think they recognize, like I say, through Fortnite and they will work to execute on it. Will probably take a little bit of a while, but in some ways, maybe not. I mean, it's pretty easy to sort of see what works and what doesn't start with a great game and build from there. Cool. Well, on the, uh, on the topic of, of older game companies managing to keep franchises alive, Capcom has been doing a fantastic job of that. Yeah, so let me take this one. So I think this is a a really a nice story, especially given how in the current games industry we see a lot of behavior, let's say from the Overwatch 2 topic that was recently discussed on on this podcast and many and and how that kind of leave a salty taste in 
a lot of gamers and, and fans' mouths. I think um, Capcom is kind of a story that I think doesn't really get talked about enough, given what they've done. Um, so Capcom has been around for a very long time, but they've had a really big resurgence, I would say, in the last sort of five to 10 years. And, and none so more. So I'm bringing this topic because of the aforementioned Street Fighter VI. If you didn't know, I have worked on the Street Fighter game myself. I used to actually skip school to go and play Street Fighter in the arcades. I was that kind of delinquent. So for me, it holds a very special place. But I think what's really interesting is it's currently sitting on a Metacritic of 92, which is almost unheard of for a fighting game, unless you include sort of Smash Brothers. And spoiler, I don't include that as a fighting game. <gasps> there I said it. It's a great game but not a fighting game. So like to have a legit fighting game, have a score that high is pretty incredible. But I think what's really incredible as well is that the last game they made, Street Fighter V, that actually had a real disaster of a launch. In fact, I can't really think of a game that had a worse launch than that. It was a game that had no content, was essentially an online-only game, and the online didn't work. Um, and as a result, it got a pretty low Metacritic. And it was a miracle, really, that it didn't kill off the franchise there and then. So I kind of feel that this is somewhat of an apology game. But I think it's not just about that franchise. So um, also this year, they released Resident Evil 4 Remake. That's one of the top three ranked games right now on Metacritic, along with the Zelda game and Street Fighter. So that's two that they stand it out the park with. And again, that was a kind of love letter game. The original Resident Evil 4 is one of the best sellers. But they've not just done it on that too. The last Devil May Cry game they released a few years ago, that sold over 6 million copies, the most successful one in their franchise. Monster Hunter World is a game that we talk about a lot on this podcast, 20 million sales worldwide, taking them to a new territory, getting them into that sort of Skyrim sort of level of success. So it almost seems like every IP that they've done recently has been a huge success. The only one I can really think of that was kind of indifferent was the Resident Evil 3 remake, which is not a game that was considered that great uh, originally. So, you know, I don't think people are so bothered about about that but i think to have such consistent execution is really impressive i think it's really impressive what they've done with the fans and i think one of the things we also sort of talk about is you know well all the acquisitions are kind of done right there isn't that really many good people that are left to get and this is the one that i've always kind of been surprised at well i could think of a very good one that's still around there that has huge ip that's perhaps undervalued perhaps it's because they're a very conservative japanese company they may not be appreciative of such offers but um you know when i see some of the kind of deals that are being done it's good um i have to say personally as well i have been playing street fighter 6 the open beat so i think it's amazing i think that's going to really kind of bring fighting games back but i think more than anything it's just a nice story as well to see that like i I think if people invest that extra time and quality into games and, and, and really do it from the heart, that that seems to be the way to win. And I think it should be, I think a lot of other companies that we often talk about, like Ubisoft being one that maybe has lost their way recently, that maybe they could take a few notes out of this playbook. Um, Activision Blizzard themselves too. And that could be a way to, you know, maybe get back your fans and, and, and remember what it's all about. And um, I wondered, you know, for the rest of the panel, if you um, are buoyed by their success and if you think there are any other lessons that other companies could learn in this instance. Like you, I'm a huge Street Fighter IP fan. Same thing, same sort of delinquent. Grew up in the arcades playing it. I love the look and feel of Street Fighter VI. I'm super excited about it. I also had an interesting feature was bringing in modern control scheme, right, to sort of like make it easier the cynical gaming business person in me starts thinking like, hmm, I get it, right? Like in this world of like ARPU and lifetime value and how people view games, you don't want people to churn out because if they churn out, like how many hundreds of millions of dollars in like follow on revenue is there? So, so I have a cynical business person's view to why you would do that, right? But as opposed to the, the traditional gaming view of like sweat equity and like you need wolves and sheep. 
but uh, you know, I, I, if it's easier for a beginner to go in and like do the badass moves, I'm all for it. And, and Capcom will make some more money over it. I also think you brought up uh, a very interesting, a couple of interesting points. First, I had not threaded together all of those IP wins the way that you just did. And it really reframes the way I think about Capcom. And you're right, like, who's really got a success string like that? And especially, you know, I think one of the knocks on these traditional Japanese publishers have been in their very top down from a global perspective and very directed. And some of those top down directives don't necessarily resonate in the West in terms of like marketing and creative assets and the like. And to sort of see that stuff resonate globally so well uh, is, is very impressive. So I had not really paid too much attention to Capcom as a business. And so when I saw that Anil put this on the docket for today, it was, you know, it was a fun excuse to go dig into the history here um, a bit. And I, I didn't realize, for instance, that Capcom over the past 10 years, like its stock, for example, is up over 10x. <laughs> which is you know probably it probably makes it one of the very best performing like publicly traded games industry companies um period in that time which is which is pretty remarkable and i think now um it has something it's like a a 10 billion dollar market cap if you um uh you, you know take it from the japanese yen to, to dollars um so it really has grown into like a really important and major player um, but I didn't quite understand either why, like the full history of like, oh, 10 years, 15 years ago, Capcom was on a pretty major losing streak and losing its trust um, with fans across basically all of its major franchises um, and, you know, made several changes um, kind of in the 2010s era to, to kind of make what we see today possible. And so digging into that, I thought was um, particularly interesting. So for um, for example, um, in 2010, Capcom said that they would stop outsourcing new IP. Apparently, they had outsourced all of their IP to more like Western studios where there are, you know, language barriers, time zone barriers, and honestly, even just probably like passion barriers for like what different teams want out of IPs. And so they stopped doing that for new IPs, but I think, you know, since have made it most everything. And even uh, uh, along that time too, I think they shut down their Vancouver studio and just brought all of the development back in-house in Japan itself. And so I think that has had pretty outsized impact for them too. Um, but also, you know, you can see that um, when... Resident Evil was hitting its stride again and turning around. So this is like the around the launch of Resident Evil 7, which was a more refreshing take once again on Resident Evil, which was being made at the same time as the Resident um, Evil 2 remake. Um, that was all um, occurring alongside the launch of a new game engine that they built internally. And so they were investing not just in making sure that the content is created well, but really making sure they have the infrastructure to make the content that they want. And so they're investing very heavily in that at the time. And then, you know, similar, you know, a few years later with Monster Hunter as when I think they really cracked the code on like going global again, which was was mentioned briefly, but I didn't realize that, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, like Monster Hunter, I mean, I didn't know it was mainly popular in Japan, but it was also mainly popular in Japan on handheld. 
like on DS and I, I guess to maybe even a lighter extent, just more like the, the PlayStation portable. Yeah, PSP. Uh, Monster the Hunter PSPs. cafes they used to have, yeah, to go and play. It's crazy. Yeah, and so basically Capcom took a major bet on saying, hey, we're for Monster Hunter World, we're going to make this console. It's not going to be um, handheld at all. And so we're basically saying, hey, it's not going to do nearly as well in Japan, which is where we make most of our money in an attempt to really unlock the rest of the world. And so they did it. They pulled it off. And that really kind of set their trajectory, uh, set, set themselves up for a new, better trajectory going forward with that franchise, but also just a, a, a better playbook for other franchises as well. Um, and so I think kind of between all of those like three main things there, um, we saw we saw slowly the building the compounding up of regaining trust, whereas, you know, they had the positive feedback loop of losing trust uh, where where they if you just continue to disappoint, then people will start to assume the worst and not just be hyped up about your games anymore. But once you start getting in stride, um, fandom starts to build, it starts to compound. And so now when we see new Resident Evil games, you have more people who are now more excited um, than they were in the past. And so those investments in doing things differently really paid off. But anyways, I just thought that history of like all of the major changes that they've made in the past 10 years was really interesting. And I do think, Anil, you're right, there probably is some lesson that the company struggling today um, can take. Because if Capcom could be one of the best 10 performing games companies or one of the best performing games companies over the past 10 years, coming out of a point of being heavily doubted and um, going through a lot of struggles, it should offer a glimpse of hope to the companies today that also are going through major struggles and are being doubted today, um, especially those that, um, yeah, the expectations are low. So if they can make some big changes, they can probably um, outperform and wow some people in the future. So... Anyways, my, my rant there is over, but I just thought that that history of their, their pivots was pretty interesting. Not a rant. What a history lesson. That was absolutely amazing. And that's exactly right. That was the kind of the, the thing I wanted to get across, just how you can turn it around, I think, with long-term strategic planning and switching to the vision. Um, I have to say, actually, I was one of those that left around that era you mentioned because a lot of people at the company, the feeling was the magic had gone. So they rediscovered it. So um, there you go, I think, for any company. But do you think Capcom will actually get acquired? Like, it's probably probably no, right? I, I don't think now. I think that I believe that they had those offers in the past. They were sometimes when they were almost out of business, actually. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. I think it's just like, you know, Japanese culture is kind of like you have nothing to really show if you get acquired. It, it's actually a shameful thing if that were to happen. So um, I think for that reason, no. But I mean... There could be, I know there are some strategic investments in there, like the Saudi um, fund that we've talked about a few times did put some money into it, I think as a 1% holding. And that would still be a smart thing, I think, for others to do. Um, this past week, we also started getting some news out of Naughty Dog and some of the the changes that they're they're making to a new Last of Us game. So Jonathan, you want to talk us through What's going on here and what can we expect from Naughty Dog going forward with this Last of Us project? Sure. So one of the big surprises from Sony Showcase was the no-show of Last of Us multiplayer, right? Highly expected. 
interestingly, it seems to be bigger than just delay and timing, right? There was a public comment about quality being questioned. There was an apology. That's above and beyond the usual sort of standard game dev and delay. There was also news that uh, dev teams have been redeployed to other projects. You know, this is all uh, far more, you know, revealed than one usually gets in a standard delay. Um, so it's not officially canceled, but uh, at the same time, Naughty Dog announces, you know, they're working on a new single player project. So the prognosis is not particularly good from where I sit. Like this is a, a high level of, uh, of, of admission and, and it seems to be telegraphing towards a cancellation. You know, this is one of the challenges of uh, living in this cross-platform, you know, billion dollar IP world, right? You have to get the timing just right and what i would call cross-platform brand management is essential and if you're thinking about how all these pieces interchange and work together and drive increasing ip engagement this is not exactly what the franchise needed right now so uh tough news all around we'll see what comes from it but i am not particularly optimistic uh you know given given what was been revealed I was going to say, I love having you on, Jonathan, because you sit at a level where you know what that talk actually means. And it made me laugh how you said you felt that that was cancellation. So you're sort of our translator for taking PR jargon. <laughs> and you're like, I can just see you just one word on WhatsApp just saying cancelled. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that is or isn't going to happen, but you're, you're right to say that um, games getting into trouble isn't, you know, this happens yeah. quite frequently. Games getting delayed. I mean, GTA 6 is always one year away from being unveiled, I feel, for the last five years. But when you hear a statement that is that candid and the redeployment of teams, um, in your experience, what does that really mean for the project? Um, and you did mention cancellation, but for an IP as big as that, is that even an option? I think the multiplayer is certainly an option because it's new. And to me, if I'm trying to put my marketer hat on, the introduction of a new single player, you know, Last of Us experience is kind of the make good, right? It, it, it allows them to telegraph cancellation and still gives hope for the franchise. But again, it's a very big pivoted mission and, and far more, as you said, than one usually comes out of these things. So I, I think they're soft pedaling cancellation. I mean, it, it is really hard you know, devs are in a major shortage today. Once you redeploy devs to kind of backfill them and put them back is a very, very, very tough job. So in, in fact, almost the redeployment of teams was like the, the big tell to me. It, would a statement like that even be used maybe to kind of rectify morale, maybe within the teams themselves to make a statement like that? How it's rare, but I have heard of some instances where there's a particularly hated creative director or publisher yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And just making that statement is actually done for the team on the ground floor to be, okay, finally, they listen to us. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, yeah, I just answered. And this is, you know, a triple A proven 20, 30 year plus developer who knows how to navigate this stuff. Like these guys are as savvy and sophisticated and experienced as anybody. So to have this level of comms out of like a legacy triple A studio says a lot. I mean, at the end of the day, right, it's a, it's a single player franchise primarily. So like, I, as you said, like the, the real important thing is this, is the single player game, whether that be another game or even if they were to do a DLC, I would think that would be just better value for their, their core audience than a multiplayer experience. I mean, I'm sure the multiplayer experience is probably even really hard to design, 
right? Like, how do you design a multiplayer experience for that particular type of game? But I imagine they were like hoping to maybe even further capitalize on the popularity of the franchise right now. But that that seems like a risk. And and I wonder if like if they cancel it now, like will they ever ever even reattempt it in the future or just go, you know what? Sorry, this is a single player franchise. We'll we'll make two of us the multiplayer franchise, right? <laughs> just change things up a little bit to you know to, to have a reason to like not even bother with it. Um, and you got to wonder too, like what did, did they say? What the other people are deployed to? Well, I imagine that's the single player. But I mean, this comes back to Aaron's point at the top of the show. So he said, you know, what did he think he'd foresee any bumps in the road of Sony's strategy of going live service? And perhaps this is the answer that that is one right now. Because to answer your question as to like why they would even take a beloved single player IP and want to make it multiplayer, I guess is because exactly that. We talk about all the games that we listed at the, the top of the show: Marathon, Fair Game. They're not. Triple A, right? Last of Us is. That's one that's going to be get people into this live service economy. And I guess the people who are working on a game, that's not what you really join Naughty Dog for, right? To make a heavy systems based game. It's all about the narrative and the experience and the emotion that you make people feel. So, um, very big kind of clash of cultures. I would imagine it's all speculation, but um, yeah, very interesting, isn't it? And I'd like to make a point tying what the two of you said together, right? Which is you brought up, you know, GTA. And Devin, you talked about how it's primarily, you know, a first person experience, you know, almost it echoes to like, you know, GTA online, right? Never really happened, but the franchise itself didn't take a big hit, right? You know, it makes me think of the Resident Evil that went, you know, tying back to the Capcom thing from earlier, the Resident Evil that went multiplayer when the PlayStation 2 got the modem and there was the Resident Evil outbreak. I played a bit of that because, you know, I got the modem. I'm like, I got to try this thing out. And the way people played that, right, they, you take a single player type experience and you make it co-op when like it was just never really crafted for that sort of thing. It was just people speed running. Just people coming in and speed running through the content. And it was like you were either helping them or you were hindering them. And it was like, I, I got to imagine like you're in a similar sort of situation with Last of Us. Like, do you just make it so people are like co-op and like hope that it's the same level of like tension and drama and like story for those two or three or whatever people? Or is it just like a totally side thing that really doesn't actually even feel like the main game because that's what outbreak felt like it felt like a totally different game but in the same setting even though it was like trying to be like a typical resident evil game and i i mean i don't have the numbers but i don't think that game did particularly well for capcom well again it speaks to your point about design experience right capcom did also try to make a franchise called lost planet and that's one of the few that they will not be continuing because it bombed pretty hard after the second one and a similar idea that was a japanese developer trying to make a first person shooter of which they had limited to no experience in it they did once try to make a racing game as well called auto modelista and i think it's the first and only racing game they will ever make because it turns out that yeah if you want to make a genre like this having years of experience is important so i think it's just one of those situations situations how uh, it goes there um but that said some companies are able to do it but it's a marathon not a sprint right um in in bungie's case very much about a marathon right but uh but yeah you have to take a lot of learning well speaking of companies that uh struggle with delays and and, and poor deliveries potentially cd project has had some updates recently if you want to dig into those aaron yeah so they recently unveiled their latest quarterly earnings which you know, revenue is down decently 19% year over year, but they still generated about 40% profit margins. But anyways, with a company like this, their financials ebb and flow with the timing of releases and such. So you can't like overly cling to what the number is in any given quarter. And what I find more interesting um, here 
is to look at what the development teams are engaged in. And there's actually some some parallels here to to, to Naughty Dog that I think are, are interesting too. But um, if you look at what has gone down in terms of what the development teams are less engaged in compared to the year ago. So it's support for cyberpunk 2077 Gwent related projects. There's been a big pullback on Um, the Witcher monster slayer um, is an AR game that is shutting down this month that had actually like a pretty decent chunk of the the company um, working on it for a, a brief period of time. And so that's where they're backing off. It looks like Cyberpunk, at least the core game, is on pretty steady footing now. Um, it took a while, but they are there. And what's gone up from what the development teams are more engaged in is Phantom Liberty, which is the Cyberpunk expansion, which is going to get showcased um, more soon, I think, at the Summer Games Fest thing. And I forget the exact timing of the release, but we'll we'll learn much more about all the details um, um, soon. And so... I think like half of the company is working on getting that project over the finish line right now. Um, but also the the other main thing that has gone up lately is Project Sirius, which is their code name for basically a multiplayer Witcher game, um, which is being made by um, Molasses Flood, which is a team that they acquired, I think, somewhat recently, and they've had some layoffs there as they've been making some changes but anyways here's another you know leading franchise trying to attack multiplayer trying to get into live ops in some way obviously cd project like naughty dog has done an incredible job for the most part um with single player games especially with the witcher and witcher 3 which is game of the year um and uh whichever year that was um and so um it's just interesting to spot the pattern of these companies um, really want the, I guess, the recurring revenue and engagement that comes with uh, comes with live ops, especially for a business like this that you know it doesn't have the luxury of Naughty Dog being part of the entire Sony umbrella, where the lumps you don't really see them quarter to quarter in the the overall financials. But for a company like um, CD Projekt, where the the occasional mega releases make or break you as a company it makes sense that they would want to you know at least in theory um find more of these recurring revenue live ops um types of projects so personally probably similar to what we've seen with multiplayer last of us i am kind of skeptical on a multiplayer witcher game um but um um, I'm curious to see what that looks like. And then, of course, um, there there is more um, development talent going towards just like the next gen single player Witcher game, too, which um, is probably going to be quite successful and heavily anticipated. Um, I I imagine is was what's going to be the ballast of the company's next few years um, going forward. So. Um, that's really in a nutshell, like the, the state of um, CD project right now and what they're working on. Um, but I'm curious to, to hear your takes on this, which is that, you know, just given that the company is going back to its roots with The Witcher, Cyberpunk looks to have stabilized, but I don't know if they're going to continue to reinvest in it heavily longer term. Um, how optimistic are you on this company as a whole going forward and being able to become 
truly more than the Witcher company being able to diversify? Or do you think that that is still where they're going to be for quite a long period of time? I think to answer that one, a lot depends on on this cyberpunk expansion because we kind of talked about kind of apology games earlier and cyberpunk, I think, would rival Street Fighter V for worst console product launch, especially with the hype that it was given. I don't know if you remember playing it, but it was such a disappointment, crashing all over the place, especially when, you know, you understood it was their dream game to work on it. I think if you play the game now, actually, you would think what's all the fuss about is pretty good and it's pretty stable, right? But that's because it's been silently been bug fixed for so long. So I think... This is a huge one for them. I think if that comes out and it actually is kind of what the original cyberpunk should have been, I think people will be forgiving because they are great at crafting these games and they can really kind of grab you and and keep you inside for it. And then I think that they can become more than just a single IP studio. I think at the same time, the success of The Witcher on TV must really be helping them, right? It's going to be creating a new legion of fans. Uh, I think, you know, trans you know, media IP is a big theme we talk about on Navic a lot. If you have something like that, it's huge. And even if they don't get all the royalties, I mean, the fact that their game is is there out, you know, based on the super successful show and book and IP is only going to help them. Um, the multiplayer game is super interesting. I find it funny how whenever we do these, we do seem to have recurring themes and they're sort of taking a single player game and making a multiplayer what's going to happen. Oof, it's a tough one. And unfortunately, I would say like, you know, their track record doesn't fill me with success given that, Cyberpunk, if you think about it, was kind of like taking uh, an open world game in the style of GTA, right, with kind of complex systems and traffic and interactions, which you don't really get in The Witcher. And they didn't execute on it too well, right? I remember there being comparison videos of sort of Grand Theft Auto 3 from 15 years ago, actually having more advanced stuff than (laughs) they had in Cyberpunk at the time. I I think they've now corrected that. So chances of them hitting it out of the park first time, sounds a bit rough to me. But if they've bought a studio who's got the experience, maybe that is the way to get around it, right? Because I felt like they 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 had over um, confidence in making Cyberpunk and rushed it out. Um, so I think for this one, let's see if they've taken their time and they've really perfected it, it could be great. I think if they were to have another similar launch like that, they will be in trouble. But I don't think they'll make the same mistake twice, personally. Yeah, and I want to echo a little bit of what both of you said. I mean, I think Aaron, you made a great point, which is you know analyzing game stocks. It's all about launch timing, right? Like there's huge quarter to quarter variances, year to year variances based on release. And so you don't necessarily analyze them in the same way you analyze more traditional packaged goods companies. And secondly, you know, can they become more than a single IP studio? I mean, I think the old thinking was the stool has to have more than one leg, right? If the stool didn't have more than one leg, it was tippy. But honestly, in this world of like IP that we talk about and cross, you know, platform IP, I'm really beginning to think of this idea of a stool and really reframing it in the idea of a tree trunk. Like on my street, there are these 300, 400 year old oak trees, right? With like these massive trunks. And I think we need to start rethinking about these single IP devs or single IP, you know, publishers into like, if the trunk is thick enough, Like you can sustain a lot of lightning, you can sustain a lot of storms, you can have failures on your new branches, but if you've got your billion dollar trunk, the tree stands. I like that analogy. And um, I think the Witcher trunk is pretty thick. Uh, They just passed 50 million units sold, which is uh, not many games get to pass that, that threshold. 
So that that's pretty great. Um, lastly, I just want to ask if Cyberpunk, the the IP game, uh, that that franchise, um, was a was a stock or was a company, and you're looking at it right now, is it a buy, a sell, or a hold for you? But depends how much you like gambling, I think, because it could go either way. Um, I, I would say hold. I, I will say this about Cyberpunk. Despite what I said about it, it sold pretty well. It's just the reputation that it gave. It depends if that's going to translate into future sales. But um, I believe that a lot of the fans of it are are still quite positive on it. It kind of did a no man's sky and that it resurrected it. So I would still be relatively bullish on it. I think... It depends because, you know, we talked about Capcom earlier in the show and they had things where Resident Evil 7, even though it was a good game, didn't sell so well because Resident Evil 6 before it was pretty bad. But Resident Evil 6 itself actually sold pretty good because the previous title, Resident Evil 5, was good. So sometimes what happens is that it takes, you know, it's not until the next one down the line that you see the impact of it. Uh, And that's what concerns me a little bit about it. but I, th- I think it'll do quite good. I- I'm still quite optimistic. I do know people that work at CD Projekt Red, and I think fundamentally they don't have that many titles that they work on so they can afford to make them higher quality and make them good. And I think that their, ve- their developers certainly, not about the executives, but the developers really do care about the things that they make. Um, so I-, I guess to answer your question, I would be buying. Interesting. Go. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of stick with my theory, which is if you're spinning it out as a standalone IP or IPO, really, I'm a sell. But if you think about it as like a business unit supported by the massive resources that The Witcher allows, it's a buy or a hold. How do you guys factor in the 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 kind of resurgence that the game got from the 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 cartoon or the anime on on Netflix having I think a really strong positive response because uh, not necessarily maybe that didn't drive a ton of uh, follow up sales I know that definitely drove some right uh, but at the same time like it drove I think a lot of interest in the IP to the point where like. People are like, you know, they kind of screwed that up, but they did fix it. Maybe I'll, I'll stick around and see yeah. what they do for the next thing, right? Like, as you guys mentioned, see what the, what Phantom Liberty does. And if that does really well, I would imagine that would be a strong indicator of like, hey, we've still got something here. You know, we, we goofed a bit, but we've got something we could do something with. Like, it reminds me a lot of like Battlefield 4, right? When they just hosed that game and they're like, you know, we're just going to keep working on it until it's good. And they did, right? And they and they made that game good. Yeah. And then they did kind of the same thing with the most recent Battlefields. Uh, is actually pretty pretty good now. Like it's actually pretty fun to play. It doesn't crash all the time now. Stuff like that. It you know, and that's a multiplayer game, so it's a little bit different. But those kinds of things where a company is like, this franchise is important enough for us to keep it going, to keep building on it. As you said, take that Witcher money and try and keep this alive. So that way, when we go to do stuff in the future, people are still excited about it. So you don't get that lumpiness Anil was mentioning of the five and six and seven sort of thing. Like, I mean, that, that happens a lot with stuff, right? Where you like, you go off of what you felt about the previous one into the next one. And you see it with even like bad sequels of movies, right? Where the, you go into the, the, the bad sequel gets the wrong feedback because it sells amazingly well ticket wise, but it was a terrible movie and no one wants to see the one after, but they green light the one after because that one made tons of money. Like, Star Wars. 
Yeah. Right. Yep. It's it's a problematic system, right? Where, where if you do that, but and I wonder though, like with you know, you talk we were talking about like live service games and stuff like that. They're doing DLC, right? And I think they did you know decent, if I recall, with the DLC for Witcher. And now they're going to be doing this DLC for Cyberpunk. You know, if they'd said, you know, we fixed enough about Cyberpunk, we can keep building on this. Do you guys see that as a platform for saying, we don't need to do a sequel right now. Let's turn this into DLC. Let's, you know, they took even the TV show, right? And they brought in the characters like outfit and stuff as a way to like continue to expand the world. And obviously it's a very deep uh, world and franchise they can use that has transmedia, not just in the, the show, but obviously the source material of the actual tabletop RPG that people picked up, right? They released the the new sets for it. I'm sure people started playing it. Like, do you guys think there's potential for them to just keep building on this version of the game even? I, I do. I think you've made three separate but very interesting points together. And I want to sort of like reiterate each one of them because they're all important. You put them together. A, you talked about the Netflix show and I am always a fan of free cultural conversation and sort of like free marketing funnel, right? For lack of a better word. So that's an important point. Secondly, you talked about the value of just kind of like grinding it out and slowly improving the game. And I also think you have a flywheel effect. If you've got the cultural conversation piece that are always sort of driving some people back to the IP as you continue to improve it, talk value gets gets better. And then you made the third point about like, do you just keep building on the world you have once you have, you know, live ops and live services games? I mean, the dream at Activision was always like, can we stop spending $300 million every year making a new COD and just have like COD world, right? And they haven't done it yet. And you can kind of get to like much better profitability, right? Without the cycle of, of new things. And potentially they all tie together because if we, you know, you go back to and Neil keeps doing a great job coming back to the themes that we have here. If we keep talking about these trans universe, you know, like mega franchises, arguably as you cycle through seasons of television shows and seasons of movies and seasons of DLC, that builds an ecosystem that becomes more conducive to move away from annual releases. But like that, you've just thrown the furthest stone down the road, which I think is arguably the most important stone, right? Because it could make all of these game publishers and devs way more profitable in the long term without these huge, 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 lumpy, singular dev lifts. But each one of those points is interesting. But if you tie them all together and kind of toss it down the road a few years and your gaming experience becomes as always on, right, as like the rest of our lives, you've got something very interesting. Well, I do hope it happens as a, as a big fan of yeah. the, the franchise and the, just the, the just the aesthetic and everything like that. So I, I hope, I mean, it would be great if they want to make that multiplayer someday. I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay with them trying that, even if they fail miserably, right? Like we saw some early attempts at GTA, like sort of hacked multiplayers, right? And like, I almost wonder if that actually helped uh, them figure out GTA 5, right? Where they're just yeah. like, hey, let's see what works and what doesn't in these terrible mods but we can see like where we could take this franchise into interesting directions and you know obviously they're they're going to be experimenting with that with the witcher to an extent and maybe that blizzard maybe they go hey you you did a good job with the witcher multiplayer maybe we could bring you over to help with make the cyberpunk multiplayer even if it's a, a spin-off just to continue the ip but uh speaking of, of high, high rendering quality <laughs> and npcs that that don't work the way you expect sometimes uh NVIDIA had uh, some pretty impressive demos and interesting stuff to talk about recently. Yeah, and I can keep this one um, short. I just think it's it's kind of cool, kind of fun. Um, so NVIDIA recently built a demo to help promote its NVIDIA Avatar Cloud Engine for games. 
And in the demo, you um, talk to the owner of an in-game ramen store who was given information about the environment, like what's going on in the world and how it affected his ramen shop and, and, and things like that. Um, and I would say the dialogue itself isn't special and it's not necessarily better than a normal dialogue tree than if you press buttons. But what's cool about it and what's new is that the characters are reacting to real language being spoken to um, and therefore, and then talking back to you in the game using what their dialogue options are or coming up with it um, in, in real time, given the information that they know with whatever parameters. And so that's just kind of cool and kind of new. I don't think we've seen that before in video games. So it's just fun to flag when there are like these real innovations um, that are happening, um, even if it's still going to take some time to actually make it into the games that we we know and love. And, and of course, in the past and recent episodes, we've discussed how putting AI characters together and sort of these test simulations has also um, led to emergent behaviors and all sorts of wacky new activities that you can extrapolate and just like imagine like, wow, yeah, if you put, you know, AI NPCs in cyberpunk, like who knows what the heck <laughs> is going to happen. And if you can talk to them in the same way that you can talk to like real people and like a GTA online or something like that, it does create a more immersive experience with a higher creative surface area and more opportunities for engagement from the lens of a game developer. And so that's really exciting. But um, as I said, it's going to take a while for any of this to actually um, show up in these games. Um, the tech is still being worked on. NVIDIA, of course, isn't the only um, the only team working on this. I think there are a few attacking it from different angles and, of course, trying to make it um, uh, into like tools that are actually useful and easy to use for developers who are just kind of plugging them into where they want them in all of the different ways. Um, but it is really exciting to see. So just wanted to call um, that out. If anyone has any further comments, we'd be happy to hear them. But I know we're nearing nearing time. I just thought it would be fun to, to mention. Yeah, just as a funny aside, I had uh, somewhat recently rewatched some stuff about Peter Molyneux that was talking about, I think it was Project Milo, his demo for the Connect that was like an AI thing. And it, it felt very similar to this demo, right? But the, the big thing about that one is it was very staged, right? And it was also meant to use the Connect and see you as a person and stuff like that. Obviously, like totally not doable for the time, but it was a cool idea. But it, but it makes me wonder, again, how much of this, like maybe it was like, you know, totally... Uh, unscripted, but how much of it was planned? Like how many times did they test? If I say this, will it say this back and things like that? And you got to imagine that's the big problem with this is like how much they have to keep the rails on, at least when they're demoing it. Right. So it was such a short demo that showed so little that it's like, it makes me a little skeptical of this being like as big a deal as they want it to be. Cause obviously they're trying to, you know, push their tech and what they could do to help. Like it's, it's a cool idea, but I, I get a little bit of that, that Peter Molyneux feel from watching that. Oh, you're totally right. Uh, 100%. I mean, anyone who toys around with chat GPT, for example, um, knows that it doesn't always do a great job of giving you what you're looking for. And sometimes goes in, in weird directions. Um, and especially if you prod it to, it can it can get off the rails. And so, of course, every every LLM is going to go through um, that type of curve where um, just dealing with people and all the crazy things that people can throw 
at them is complex. So giving them setting the right parameters to like within whatever box developers um, want to to give back appropriate responses. That's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take some time to really make that um, smooth um, and appropriate and in all sorts of different contexts. But I think it's a start, which is which is exciting. And clearly, everything is moving fast right now. So we don't want to ignore that it's happening, even if we're skeptical about the near term implications of it. As I guess my my frame on it. Yeah, and the long term interesting thing is when it goes from being the ramen shop owner to like the guy selling stuff at the armory, right? Like sort of taking your money. Like I watch Alexa trying to take my son's money almost every day, like in real life. <laughs> so, you know, when when characters and games are getting you to buy stuff based on what they know you have bought and what your weaknesses are and are calling out, you know, hey, you got stuck at that point in that game. And if you buy this, you'll get through. Like that's when this stuff guys starts to get really interesting. And I'm telling you, I'm starting to see Alexa do it. Oh God, the the idea of the game like conning you into monetization, like it's bad enough as it is, right, with in-app purchases where there's all the tricks to try and get you to do it. Imagine the NPC just lying to you and being like, this will totally defeat that boss <laughs> just to get you to make a purchase. Even oh, if boy. they're not lying. I mean, if they're lying even more, but even if they're not lying, like this can really up our poo. Well, definitely seems like NVIDIA's hoping that will be the case, right? <laughs> But uh, we actually have a, a mailbag question I think we wanted to make sure we got to because uh, it was from a little bit ago, but we wanted to make sure that we had a good answer for you. It's a little bit long, so I'm going to read the whole thing out uh, verbatim, but uh, a couple of questions all kind of packed into one uh, regarding when we talked about Zelda previously. Um, so uh, it was, and then just read it out verbatim, it was any commentary on how Nintendo has been able to keep Zelda relevant and so successful as an IP recently, past five releases, asking this more from a product lens, or in other words, how is Zelda differentiating the product from version to version? And what can the industry learn from them when it comes to increasing IP longevity and doing sequels? More specifically, what can mobile free-to-play learn, especially when we have companies like Rovio and Saibo just fumbling with their Angry Birds and Subway Surfers sequel strategy and finally is zelda actually growing its audience over releases any numbers to help back that up and of course i think a lot of this ties back to some of the conversation earlier as well yeah so i can kick this off with some data at least to kind of set the scene for for answering some of this so um if you look at the the units sold data the zelda games from the very first one through the wii u 3ds era they all sold within a range of like two to eight million units with with ups and downs and peaks and troughs um, along the way. And there are a couple sales patterns here to keep in mind that I think just kind of help understand how Zelda has evolved over time in accordance with Nintendo's evolution itself, um, which is one, the, the sales of the, these mainline Zelda games often correlate with where Nintendo is in its hardware cycle. So naturally, New Zelda games on new consoles have historically performed among the best, um, but that range of sales also totally depends on the success of that generation. Like the Zelda did not sell well on the Wii U because the Wii U did not sell well, right? And so in that time period, Zelda did not increase its audience at all, and in fact, shrunk it quite quite a bit. Um, and from a product design standpoint, which I'm definitely not, you know the the foremost expert on this and haven't even played all of these Zelda games, but Zelda, like 
many Nintendo games leans into the capabilities of the hardware that it runs on, um, both in the sense of from like motion sensing on the Wii to the dual screen touchscreens on on the DS. And of course, there are patterns for all these. But a lot of times um, how Nintendo has thought through its game design and how the control schemes work and things like that, it's just totally dependent on the new new features that they're trying to unlock with the the new hardware that they have pushed out. Um, And I think doing that has helped Zelda stay fresh over time. But the the other thing that I just want to point out here is that Breath of the Wild, which of course is the first main Zelda game on the Switch and which innovated by going more open world, less linear storytelling and unlocked new mechanics um, because of that. Um, it sold 30 million units, <laughs> which is way, way, way above what any Zelda game had had done before it by multiples, um, which is a remarkable achievement um, on one hand. But it's also important to realize that um, the timing of of that, too, in accordance with where Nintendo was in its hardware, the Switch took together, basically merged uh console and handheld into one. So whereas in the past, Zelda games typically were just sold on one or the other and therefore had more limited sales because of the hardware that they were on. It really was the first time that on handheld and playing on TVs, there was one Zelda game for it all. And doing that on a new console, unlocking new capabilities in an open world way really did unlock new audiences for this game. And that has carried forward into Tears of the Kingdom more recently, which sold um, reportedly over 10 million units in its first three days, which in its first three days already became the second best-selling Zelda game of all time. So the the data does point very heavily towards, yes, Zelda has been able to grow its audience almost entirely in the Switch era um, compared to it to the past, which is pretty remarkable. So um, that's that's kind of the data to underline this conversation with but i'll i'll open it up to the rest of the panel on if anyone has more thoughts on how zelda has stayed relevant how, how it has stayed relevant or in particular if there are any parallels that free to play <laughs> can learn from zelda which i'm unsure of personally I think there is something to be said there because I think maybe what the uh, the question uh, is hinting at is that Zelda's reinvented its game format quite a few times, right? If you think about what it was on the NES to what it was on handhelds to what it is now, where it's basically a kind of open world single player MMO type experience. Like if you if you played Zelda, the most recent ones, I mean, there's a lot of Dark Souls elements in there, which is crazy for a Nintendo game to have like a repair system that's quite punishing like that. But they went that way, and the creative director even went as far as saying that that is the new direction for the game that is going to be less kind of linear adventure which it was on in previous formats and be more like that so you know he, he talks about angry birds and and games like that or, or cyber games and you know you got to get relevant right sometimes you can't just keep making the same thing over and over and expect it to be a success um again coming back to capcom resident evil that's a game that's changed three times from being tank controls to shoulder cam to first person and they've had success doing that each time um it's, it's much harder to do in free to play though the, the big reason why people don't really do that is because it's so hard to make a free to play success that people are extremely hesitant to, to change and sometimes you change it and you just make it worse and people like to stick with what's working and kind of going with jonathan's kind of like strong oak tree in the middle right that's normally how those kind of ipr like you're much better off 
just doubling down on your game that's already working in the live service economy rather than trying to make a second one because it might cannibalize sales or or not work as well. And actually, to be fair to Rovio, they've they've done that many times with Angry Birds, right? They have an Angry Birds RPG that's been semi-successful. They had a puzzle game that actually got into the top 50 top grossing. So they had relative success of it going in other worlds, but it, it can be kind of dilutionary in terms of how it works. Uh, but I think definitely it's something that now that we're getting to this kind of point in time where IP is lasting a long time, like the 10 plus years range, I think you have to keep relevant and be aware of changes and what new generations, if you want to bring them in, how to make a game that's relevant to them, uh, which is the modern controls that we talked about earlier as well, kind of tying back into that. I also suspect, and I'm curious what you think about this, Sunil, too, that it is limited, the lessons you can learn um, from from Zelda sequels to apply it to free-to-play sequels. Uh, not even just because it's, you know, one is typically on mobile and the other one is, you know, console or handheld in, in another way. But it's more the business model. It's just that when you're a premium game versus a free-to-play game, the premium model is made possible because you have sequels. Whereas the free-to-play model, I guess it can, but it's largely more about amassing an audience and keeping them and engaging them in one spot for as long as possible and basically putting all the new content that you have in that one spot. And so maybe there's something to learn about how to put the new content in that same spot, but it just seems like any any way you think about sequels between a free to play model and a premium model is just radically different. So I'm not I'm not sure what the lessons are to learn there, but if there are any um would be interested to hear there's one i can think of which is in clash of clans if you play that if you get to a high enough town hall level the game actually completely changes and they have a pvp component rather than the pve and though i can't say for certain because i don't work there i suspect it's because clash of clans 2 is actually in clash of clans 1 and that they made that decision because they realized why do you need to it's like new coke you don't need to make a new coke when the regular coca-cola is already pretty popular um and that could be the takeaway lesson there it's difficult to say but um if it ain't broke don't fix it i guess is what it comes down to hopefully that answered your question uh and just a reminder to everyone who wants to hit up the mailbag it's podcast at novic.co we definitely welcome your feedback very much and and look forward to more in-depth questions and comments and things like that. I definitely want to hear from you guys. Uh, fun to do, fun to dig into. And of course, uh, there's a good chance you get someone else uh, answering your question than who you were di- directly asking it to, which makes it all that much more fun for different perspectives, right? Uh, but definitely make sure to hit that up. And I want to thank, uh, of course, all the panelists. As always, fantastic conversation. And you guys are always very insightful. So great to hear lots of cool stuff. And you listeners, of course, for tuning in. And we will see you all next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.